This season of Hello Nature is brought to you by the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, the ultimate expression of the legendary capability of the Outback line. In addition to its 9.5 inches of ground clearance, the Outback Wilderness is loaded with off-road ready upgrades to take you further than ever before. Adventure elevated with the Subaru Outback Wilderness. my goodness this is so beautiful oh my gosh i can't believe this is like right outside the city this is mind-blowing we're in a forest preserve in chicago today setting up camp right by the water it's a gorgeous silvery blue lake surrounded by tall trees that are waiting for their leaves to return the perfect spot to camp right outside the city is there really no bottom of the tent is that the tarp and this this is the tent? I could not understand how this was working. This is Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios and Subaru. I'm your host, Misha Youssef. This episode, we're camping in Chicago, home to the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe Odawa and Potawatomi Nations, many other tribes such as the Miami, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Sac, and Fox also called this area home. Even though I've lived near the water for as long as I can remember, I had no idea the ocean was blue until I moved to the United States. For most of my childhood, I lived right next to the Arabian Sea. Our childhood house was actually part of a complex called Sea View because we were that close to the water. We could literally see the sea. After school or on a weekend, I would go to the beach with my family we would eat papadum and street corn and ride camels along the sand. We'd play in the water. My mom was afraid of the ocean, so we never went in too far. But we still liked to dip our toes in. That water, the sea that we played in, was brown. So in my little kid brain, I thought the ocean was brown. And that the blue-green water I'd heard of, that was the stuff of cartoons. I didn't know then that the water in Pakistan was brown because of years of pollution. People littering, of course, but also big things like oil spills and toxic waste dumping. When we moved to California in 2003, we stayed with my uncle in San Diego for a bit. I remember going to a San Diego beach with my cousins for the first time, and there were two things that shocked me. The bikinis. Everyone's just, like, in their underwear and the water. It was like the cartoons had come to life. Blue-green, crystal clear, salty, and freezing cold. The kind of water that makes you understand the ritual of baptism. Makes you feel clean and holy, grounded and in touch with nature, in touch with something truly divine. I was in awe, but I also had this really sad feeling. Why was the water in my home country brown? Why was nature in Pakistan treated like a dump? Because I was an immigrant kid, I grew up and got to experience that blue-green water. I got to have the luxury to do so many things in the ocean. Swimming, kayaking, boating, in a clean, blue, safe place. With a lifeguard just a few yards away. To me, the ocean is a beautiful place. A place where you experience joy. But for my mom, that's not the case. 
It honestly might never be the case because, to her, the ocean is a scary place that can hurt you. But I'm super lucky because I grew up between these two worlds. I've gotten to see that both these things can be true. And that your childhood experience of nature plays a huge part in all of it, in how you see nature, in how you interact with it as a grown-up. If all you know of nature is that it's a place that's polluted, that's dangerous, that gets people sick, then it's hard to reclaim it, you know? But when you've had the privilege to see what nature can be, you want to fight for it. And you want to share it with people you love. So as an immigrant, that includes your parents. You want to translate your experience for them. You want to show them what they've sacrificed everything for. You want them to see what's possible. That's what I think about every time I'm out in nature. And look how far I've come from that little girl scared to go into the sea in Karachi. I'm out here in Chicago, camping in 30 degrees in the middle of March. I think we should build a fire. It's really, really cold. Aren't we almost done with the tent? I'm going to have frostbite. Okay, okay, let's do this. Let's do this. And we also forgot our gloves. Misha, if a bunch of 12-year-old boys can camp, we can do it too. I keep rubbing my hands against each other and thinking about how perfect this would be in the summertime. That I have to come back here. Honestly, I'm not beneath getting two more fire starters either. No, I'm not beneath it. There's no ego here. Whatever it takes to survive tonight is what we're going to do. Oh, yeah. Who all should not have been camping in uh, that cold? (laughs) Zabari Widor knows exactly what I'm talking about. She's camping all over Chicago in all kinds of weather. She's an outdoor educator for young kids, especially kids of color. She's also an immigrant, so she gets that too. Zabari knows what it's like when nature and outdoor activities are related to trauma and hard things. She also knows what it's like to experience joy in nature. And she knows what it's like to share that joy with others. I mean, she does it for a living. She's taken her experiences, her fears, and not just overcome them. She's helping other black and brown and immigrant kids overcome their fears. And she does this in forest preserves all over Chicago. She takes kids kayaking, hiking, camping, One of her favorite spots is this forest preserve called the African American Heritage Water Trail. And that's where our story begins today. Yeah. This is the boat launch right here. Oh, wow. Should we go out there? Yeah. I'm with Stephanie, our senior producer, and she and I are standing with Zabari on the shore of the Little Calumet River in southeast Chicago. You can bike the trail, you can walk the trail, but like to get the full experience is to get out on the water and paddle this trail. You get to see all the wildlife and just enjoy. It's sleeting. The water is super rough. The wind is whipping my hair back and forth, as Willow Smith would say, straight into my eyes. It's very prairie-like here. Leafless trees, tall brown grass, flat. (laughs) That looks like a painting. He's just staring at us. There's some deer a few feet away. There's no one else here except for the three of us. And the deer, of course. 
Okay, so you take the boat down from like that little dock over there. Oh no, you right here. Oh, we wow. launch right here. We'll Okay, so we're standing at the boat launch and across from us there's a hill. This is the starting point of the African American Heritage Water Trail. I feel like the signage doesn't indicate that there's like an African American Heritage Trail. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's so new so in 20 It's a 7-mile trail and it runs along the Little Calumet River. You can honestly take a boat the whole way, which is something that Zabari likes to do. She usually canoes or kayaks. I wish we'd been able to like paddle and actually experience it. Me too. Oh my gosh, you all would have loved rain though. Yeah. (laughs) On this trail, there are almost 30 historic sites and they all highlight the black history of the area. And so once you launch into this area right here, this is all a part of the Underground Railroad as folks If the weather was better, Zabari would have taken us kayaking on the trail so we could see everything up close, you know? We would have learned about the history as we paddled. How cool is that? We obviously weren't able to do that because of the weather. So Stephanie talked to two people to learn about the history here. My name is Larry McClellan. I am Emeritus Professor of Sociology and Community Studies from Governor State University. My name is Lillian Holden, and I'm currently the water specialist for a local nonprofit called Open Land. So the story behind the water trail starts with the Underground Railroad. Wait, I thought the Underground Railroad was more of an East Coast thing. Or have I forgotten all my history? That's what historian Larry McClellan thought, too. I really wanted to dig into that. So he starts researching. And he finds out there's a big network in Chicago. There were people escaping their enslavement across the Deep South and the Mississippi River Valley. And a lot of those folks ended up coming into the state of Illinois. He learns about the freedom seekers and how they would travel across the Little Calumet River. In the decades before the Civil War... Chicago emerged as a sanctuary city. People knew that if they could get to Chicago, their chances of safety were pretty good. Over the years, in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, thousands of people escaping from their enslavement made their way into Illinois either to come directly to Chicago or to bypass Chicago on their way to Detroit and freedom in Canada. He finds out about this Dutch family, the Tons. One young family... Jan and Angie Tun acquire land on the banks of the Little Calumet. Sometimes freedom seekers got into the region of the Little Calumet River and they might need a place to stay or they might need some food or they might need directions or whatever. And the Tuns responded to that need. And so over time, Jan and Angie Tun had a variety of freedom seekers stop at their farmhouse on the Little Calumet River. So the Tons were a white abolitionist family, and they did a lot of work to help freedom seekers. So naturally, Larry gets curious about where their farm was located along the Little Calumet River. Does he go look for it? He does. And it's kind of wild where it ends up being. What do you mean? Where is it? So it's actually where the first ever Black-owned marina in Chicago is. I made contact with Ron Gaines, the owner of Chicago's finest marina, and began talking with Ron about the fact that his marina is located exactly where the farm buildings had been for the Tun Farm. And this is sort of where the water trail gets its start. We got more and more organized in terms of doing tours and telling stories and writing things up. Larry and Ron partner with the Forest Preserves of Cook County and another organization. It's called Open Lands. 
So Oakland is a local nonprofit, and the main focus is to get people outdoors, experiencing nature, environmental education, policies, land acquisition, planting trees, and more. Lillian Holden is Open Land's water trail specialist. What does she say about the trail? So she says that the goal of creating the water trail was to highlight both the Underground Railroad and Black history in South Chicago. So the water trail covers at least 180 years of history, ranging from the Underground Railroad, which would be the antebellum period, to the civil rights uh, movement, 60s, and then to contemporary history. Okay, take me on a tour. So you start the trail at the Bobby and Woods boat launch, where we saw that hill, which is actually not a hill. And the hill is a landfill. We start to talk about the environmental justice movement. In the 1940s, Chicago Housing Authority built wartime housing for African-American workers. It was called Altgelt Gardens. But it sits in the middle of what has now been referred to as a toxic donut. And that toxic donut meant that surrounding this area, There were large industries. There was a huge industrial complex along the Calumet River itself. There were landfills. And so they were surrounded by all these kind of very toxic elements. And a remarkable woman who lived in Alkill Gardens, Hazel Johnson, really understood and organized her neighbors to really deal with the fact that they were surrounded by these toxic elements. The industries, the politicians, and everybody else to care about the bucks. But what is happening to people's health? And many people consider this the birth of the environmental justice movement. I feel like I remember that from reading President Obama's first book, Dreams for My Father. I'm sure you did, because Hazel Johnson actually mentored Obama. He started a lot of his community work here. Oh my gosh, everything's connected. Okay, so where does the trail go next? So then you paddle to Ton Farm and Chicago's finest marina, which we just talked about. And then another side that we have is the Major Taylor Trail Bridge. That is the bridge for the Major Taylor Trail, which is a bikeway that goes up into the city of Chicago. Major Taylor was probably the most famous American in the world in 1910. He was a champion bicycle racer. And of course, in the United States, he faced all kinds of discrimination. So he traveled to Europe and for years, he was the outstanding world champion bicycle racer. All of the rest of the world honored Major Taylor, but he was basically ignored in his own country. So we're actually going to talk more about Major Taylor in our Atlanta episode. If you go further along, Robbins was an absolutely remarkable community. African-American families were settling there at the beginning of the 20th century, and they were known nationally as the first community in the North to be governed by people of color. I think the African-American Heritage Water Trail is a wonderful way to commemorate and celebrate and raise awareness of a variety of elements within Black history, which, of course, just enriches history for all of us. You keep talking about how these stories of Black history, they enrich history for everyone. And I love that. But I'd love you to talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and why you say that. 
as, you know, as an old white guy, people will ask me, well, you know, why are you interested in this? It is very clear to me that black history matters. And it matters because it has been such a neglected part of our national history. And that for all of us, we need to know the, the fullest history we can. It is unfair to us and to our children if we tell only part of a story, if we give only one perspective, because the story itself is much richer and deeper and the varying perspectives are very, very important. If I want to tell you the history of something, why should I tell you 60% of it? Why not tell you 100%? It's important to highlight spots like Tawn Farm. These are the places where white people really showed up. But there's a bit of a problem with that. It skews the entire history of the Underground Railroad. For the last 180 years or so, the stories of the Underground Railroad have focused on the heroics of white abolitionists. And the focus has been on Underground Railroad sites. This is where good white people help the poor slaves. We have to turn that upside down. The real story is that all of these human beings grabbed their freedom. They left their enslavement, and when they came into other parts of the country, they needed some assistance, and people started to respond. It was their movement that created responses, and those responses to freedom seekers become the networks of the Underground Railroad. So what Larry's trying to say is that this isn't a story of white saviors. Exactly. We need to reframe these conversations about historic movements because BIPOC people have led the charge for so many years without getting credit. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the stories I heard during my road trip around the national parks. Totally. And the cool thing about projects like the Water Trail is that it does start to reclaim that story. It's like two things are happening at once. There are people who are fighting to reclaim the story and the history of nature in these areas. And then there are also people who are fighting to reclaim the nature itself. Yes, exactly. People like Hazel Johnson. Also, when people do this, you know, reclaim both the story and the nature, it actually has a lot of positive effects on the area. The far southern edge of the city of Chicago is a very forgotten part of Chicago. The GPS also doesn't know how to get me out of here. Yeah, but that's okay. In point of fact, Chicago's finest marina and the Tun Farm site is on 134th place. We'll try to go back out exactly the way we came in. 134th place may be the only dirt road in the city of Chicago. I mean, if the roads were paved and there were signs, it might be easier to navigate this area. That's all good. Good thing we have the Subaru. It appears that the designation of the Tun Farm site and the creation of the African-American Heritage Water Trail are both having very positive results in terms of the development of the area. There are some other folks that have been purchasing land there. There may be a second Black-owned marina developing right in the neighborhood. An important element in all this is that this turns a a light on this part of Chicago that has just been systematically ignored. And I'm very hopeful that uh, um, 
this will be a, a real contributing element to the redevelopment and the further development of this far south end of the city of Chicago. And this whole fight isn't just about healing from trauma. It's about finding the beauty and joy in nature again. And that can't happen without feeling a connection to the land. Because of this work, people like Lillian and Zobari have gotten to build that connection, to get to know their history and their community. It's supposed to be like a celebration of history, but also it's heavy because the Black community has gone through a lot of trials and tribulations and oppression and uh, consistently have fought for freedom and their rights. So working on the African-American Heritage Waterfront it opened up a lot of history that I was not familiar with, which, again, just highlights the erasure of history and how it has impacted me and my self-awareness. I, I'm a Black person, and um, I think that there are a lot of uh, connections that I made. Paddling along the Little Kaima River is a beautiful experience, very uh, surreal, ethereal, and scenic. There is power in knowing your identity. There is power in understanding where you are, who you come from. That's the lesson that Zobari learns. But her story is after the break. Hey, it's me, Misha. You all know I've come a long way from season one when camping was pretty much a new thing for me. I'm not claiming I'm an expert now, but since discovering that I can experience nature right outside of the city, I'm so excited to sharpen my skills. And with my newfound motivation to get outside, plus the impactful work being done to increase accessibility to nature through organizations like Chicago Adventure Therapy and leaders like Zobari, adventure is right around the corner. That's where Subaru comes in. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness is the ultimate enabler for your outdoor adventure. Standard, symmetrical, all-wheel drive, off-road tires, and 9.5 inches of ground clearance. Plus, comfy water-repellent interiors are among just a few of the features that make the Outback Wilderness the ideal vehicle when you're gearing up and heading out. Learn more about the Subaru Outback Wilderness at Subaru.com wilderness. Zabari Widor is the Associate Executive Director for Chicago Adventure Therapy. Her literal job is taking young people on outdoor adventures, from kayaking to rock climbing and camping. But her first camping experience was in a refugee camp. So I grew up in Nigeria. Well, I grew up in Chicago, but I started off in Nigeria. My family spent the first three years of my life in a refugee camp. Um, I was born in the refugee camp. <laughs> so it's a funny story because my mom talks about how like, oh, yeah, well, she was walking down the side of the street and then she went into labor. So I was born in an old woman's house. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, OK, cool. So I was already born out in nature. <laughs> so my dad is from a town called Ogoni. The Niger Delta is riven by conflict and polluted by the oil that should be its lifeblood. Over 27 hectares of land. Okay, so basically, in the late 1950s, some oil companies built an oil field in Nigeria where the Ogoni people live. This caused a lot of environmental destruction. 
In the 1990s, the Ogoni people started to speak out and protest against the pollution. It was this huge movement. Zubari's dad joined the activists, and they staged big protests everywhere. And then the Nigerian military was sent to stop the protests. Protesters were punished brutally. Some of them were killed. Some were sent to jail. And Zobari's dad was one of those people sent to jail. So because my dad was jailed, my mom ended up in the refugee camp when everyone was displaced. In the meantime, the people who are still in prison are being killed. And my dad was two of the ones who ended up not being killed. So super lucky to still have him in my life. Her dad gets out of prison and joins the rest of the family back in the refugee camp. So at the time, it was my dad, my mom, my sister, and myself. So it was four of us. So we shared with two other families who had about three or four people per family inside that one big tent. But it was also very much so a community because we could only rely on each other and the resources that are coming from the outside, from the folks who were trying to help the refugees in the camp. But they can only do so much for you. It was not a great living situation. I look back at it and like, wow, that is really something that I lived through. They live in the refugee camp for a little while, and then they get selected to go to the United States. For the past three years, I have not known how it feels to lie on a bed, a good bed. And so there's like footage of my dad talking about, oh, he's excited to come to America. I hear about hamburger. I don't even know what the hamburger is. He's outside the refugee camp and my mom is holding me. And I'm just like there, but I was frowning. And it was so funny because like they're talking to my dad and I'm just like leaning on her, just like mean mugging the camera. <laughs> In 1998, the family is placed in Chicago after three years in a refugee camp. And so we've been there ever since. By the time they get to Chicago, Zabari's parents are natured out. When we came to the U.S., my parents, I think because of that experience, having to live in a tent for those many years, they did not have us in nature. Like, we didn't go to the lake. We didn't go to picnics. We didn't do any of those things. They spent years outdoors for their literal survival. So the idea of being outdoors for fun didn't make a lot of sense to Zabari's family at the time. Then, in high school... Zabari meets this woman. Her name is Andrea Nepper, and they meet at the school activities fair. Andrea is the executive director and founder of Chicago Adventure Therapy, which is called CAT for short. Before she starts CAT, Andrea is a social worker who is literally moonlighting as a kayaking guide. She starts CAT because she wants to combine her passions. CAT brings the healing powers of outdoor adventure to underserved youth she worked with as a social worker. So we're back at the school fair. Zubari goes up to Andrea's booth. She brought a kayak and life jacket and charts and all of that into Sen High School's gym and said that this is her career and this is something that someone can do in the future. And I was just like, this looks really fun and I want to do it. And like, why not? This is the moment Zubari veers away from her parents' experience. She tries something that they wouldn't. Can you describe that first time that you went kayaking to me? So my first time kayaking was actually on a super windy day. They almost canceled the program. So it was just like a chaos, pretty much. We had these small waves that were coming in, so we had to be pushed past the waves. So they walk us all the way through until we get through that biggest crashing wave. 
and like, okay, paddle, paddle to the staff member who's over there. And they'll direct you to the next person who is gonna help you make your way over to the cove where the wind is less windy and more protected. I'm paddling, I'm staying there. I'm like, okay, I got this, the waves are moving. So I'm holding position. The other girls ended up being pushed all the way back. And I think at some point they realized we're not gonna make it to that cove as a group. It's just not gonna happen. And so they changed the plan up. We ended up learning how to surf our kayaks. They had an instructor out there who was like, okay, so when you feel the water underneath your boat, start paddling hard until you're on top of it and then surf it in, put your blade in the water. I didn't understand what they were saying, but they were showing me the steps and I was like, like this? I don't think I was thinking. <laughs> I was powering through it. I didn't have any technique. I was just like arm muscle, arm muscle. So I'm just like paddling, paddling, paddling hard. They told me to put my paddle in this way. This is where I'm putting it. I'm surfing. All right, keep doing it again. So my brain was just like, just go, 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 go. You got this. And then I was just surfing on the wave. And it was just so amazing. I could feel the power of the water. Zabari gets hooked. She gets more and more involved in Kat. And Andrea becomes her mentor. Andrea sees a lot of potential in Zabari, so she invites Zabari to a paddling symposium. If you don't know what that is, me neither. But Zabari told me that it's a conference where people come from all over, and they spend days kayaking and camping. Okay, but the thing to remember is that Zabari hasn't been in a camp since she was a kid. And she's literally never gone camping for fun. So her mom is kind of freaked out. Andrea actually had to come to my house and convince my mom to let me go on this trip. And my mom was like, no, she needs to babysit her sister. She can't go out of town. Like, we never did sleepovers. And she just hated the idea. And we had to have a whole conversation. And she convinced her, oh, she'll be with me. So Andrea was like, oh, she can call you in the morning when we're getting off the water and at night so you know that she's safe. And I think that she thinks that, oh, it was about the safety for my mom. It was, why are you going out in nature? She didn't quite understand that. So somehow, Andrea works her magic, and Zabari's mom agrees to let her go to the symposium. So yeah, my first camping experience, um, I did never set up a tent before, and Andrea helped me to set it up. And so I went into my tent because I had a few minutes before we had to do dinner. So I came out of my tent, and I look up. It is just a beautiful, clear sky full of stars just felt so much so a part of it all and so small. Like, I felt like I fit at that moment. I felt like I was that puzzle piece that fit in a hundred-piece puzzle. It just made sense to me, and so it was just a very overwhelming experience for me. Like, I'm trying to put it into words how I felt that day, because even now I reflect back and I'm just amazed at what kind of commitment, like, I don't even know where my mind was for me to say, like, this is what I want to do, but that is what I wanted to do. Like, all the problems at home and with school or whatever the case was just, like, went out the door, and I just decided that I love nature. I love the outdoors. I always want to do this. I will always be a part of this. So she decides to get even more involved. She gets certified to become a coach. She takes a gig as an intern with Kat. And she starts to go to more symposiums, except now she's going as an assistant coach. She spends more and more time in these circles. And the more she's hanging around these symposiums, she starts to notice something. 
there was nobody who looked like me. I'm telling you, all the coaches are 60 and up. Like I was by far the youngest person in the group and by far the person with the least amount of experience, by far the person with the most color in the group. There were no Latin folks. There were no African-Americans, no Native Americans, no Asian, nobody, no BIPOC folks at all at my first symposium. And it just felt like, whoa, I'm in a whole different world. Even Zabari's mentor, Andrea, is white. But the two of them talk about race and how few people of color are around. They brainstorm how to get more young people of color to experience nature. And not just experience, but become leaders in the outdoor adventure space. This becomes Zabari's North Star. We're trying to take over symposiums with people of color as coaches. Now that Zabari is training others to become leaders, she gets to witness young girls grow. There's this one assistant coach. Her name is Tiara. Her very first paddling session was a windy day. She got stuck on the rocks. The wind was pushing her. She said, I'm never doing this again. And it was a seven-day trip. And so this is day one. By day three, we got her back on the boat. She started loving it and has not stopped paddling ever since. Today, she is a kayak coach and works for Chicago Adventure Therapy. So to see that switch, to watch other young people... You know, eyes light up when they do these adventure sports with us, when they get out into these spaces and are away from everyday life and problems and our kids again or are happy again. Um, it's just so fulfilling and so joyful. I feel like I see myself in them. Zabari is more confident in nature because she knows where she comes from, because she's had the privilege to explore her own identity. As a refugee, and as an immigrant, because she's aware of how trauma and nature are connected for her. Knowing where she comes from helps her reclaim nature, to find joy in it. And part of sharing that means creating the same type of space for others, for young coaches whose history is rooted in Chicago, in America, in the fight for freedom from slavery. It's rooted in fighting against environmental racism on the Calumet River and in reclaiming nature from trauma. Another one of the Chicago's hidden gems, and that's the African-American Heritage Water Trail. It's on the Little Calumet River. We found out about it two years ago, and last year was the first year that we actually ran some programming and did some trainings for the youth crew that were going to be leading community members and people who are just interested on canoes on the African-American Heritage Water Trail. Zabari takes all kinds of people out to the trail to go paddling. But there's one person that she really, really wants to paddle with. Her mom. So I've always wanted her to go paddling with me. <laughs> but I, there hasn't ever been the opportunity to do it. But then we received a grant and it allowed us to be able to do family adventures. And so we were offering this to other families. And I was just like, what about my family? I told her, oh, I'm going to take us all kayaking. <laughs> and that was that was really, it wasn't an ask. It was, oh, this is happening. <laughs> and she said, okay. It wasn't just my mom. It was my brother and my sisters. And my grandmother was there. Was she scared? Yes. Oh, yeah. Because she's seen a kayak before. And I know the kind of person that my mom is. And so I had her in a canoe. You don't feel like you're about to touch the water. You're not in this small space. And so I was in a canoe with my grandmother. Andrea was in a kayak. 
And then my little sister, Fifi, she had paddled with me once before, and so she was in a kayak. My brother and his girlfriend were in a tandem kayak together, which was hilarious. And at this point, Andrea has been mentioning that she wants me to take over the organization. And so as we were taking the boats down and I was running the whole show, like, oh, okay, can you help me grab this? Here are the life jackets. Go ahead and put this on. And so my mom was observing all these things happen. And Andrea walked over to her and she said, that's why she's going to take over this organization soon. <laughs> and then I walked away. It's like my mom got it. She's like, I know that you're good at what you do and that this is what you love doing. And so... That was really awesome. <laughs> what was it like seeing your mom specifically, like, out on the water with you? It was heartwarming <laughs> to see her do it and for her to actually enjoy it. Later on, she told me, oh, her whole body was hurting her. But at the time, she was smiling. And I was so happy to have her experience that and be happy the way that I'm happy when I'm on the water. So it's like three generations right there on the water, my grandma, my mom, and me. And I was just like, this is so awesome to have you all finally be a part of this part of my life. Like, I don't have to have two separate lives, all my family life versus my paddling life it has now become one. And you all can experience how I see life as a whole. Remember at the beginning, we were talking about this idea of like re- orienting yourself with camping and like being out in nature, going from like a refugee experience to something that you do for pleasure that like you have agency over. How did it feel to do that with your mom and your grandma? It was interesting to see them have that experience. And for my mom, I think camping in a tent is going to be a very hard thing to sell. She was okay with the paddling. Where we're from is called River State, and they're known for, like, fishing and being by the water. So she's aware of boats and, like, use for survival, but not for fun and recreational use. And so for her to be a part of the fun side and recreational use of it, I think that kind of changed her idea of what boats are used for. I'm hoping one day I can get her to camp. But that is an experience that would be much harder on her because she did have to live in a refugee camp and does have that experience. Have you talked to her about camping together? No. <laughs> I thought I would start it off with just the paddling and just like ease into it. And so, you know, she, she did the paddling, she felt it in her body and she enjoyed it. And I think maybe this upcoming summer, I'll be willing to maybe discuss like, oh, we should do a family camping trip, get her dates and see if she'd be, you know, down to do that. <laughs> Zabari wants her mom to feel what she feels when she's camping. She wants to translate her experience for her mom. When I go camping by myself, wow, I'm a part of it. Like, I'm centering myself. I'm grounded. The thing is, like, the script has been rewritten from this negative, poverty-written, low-resource experience in a tent to something that's fun and campfires and stories and community. And, oh, I just finished a wonderful day of paddling and then climbed into my tent for privacy and me time and warmth. And so, like, I really look back and reflect at how positive the experience in a tent has been for me. Just stand here for a bit. This is so nice. Wow, there's nothing like a fire. While we're by this fire, it's so nice and warm. And my hands are tingly, 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 tingly. Is it done? Is it recording? Oh, yeah. Have you been, oh, my God. <laughs> 
When we got back from camping in the freezing cold, Stephanie and I put on the warmest clothes we could find, and we just plopped ourselves on the couches in the living room of the house that we were staying at. We made hot teas, turned up the heater, and put on a movie. It's called Coda. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's about a deaf family with a daughter who can hear. Her family is afraid of the hearing world because people literally can't understand them. They can't relate to the experience of never hearing, of living in silence. So the daughter becomes the family's translator. She fights for their business, and she fights for their rights. She listens on their behalf. She signs back to them so they understand. And then she speaks for them to the rest of the world. I feel like being an immigrant daughter is kind of like that. Being a translator to a different world. A world our parents can't access. You don't just have to hold your own fear. You have to hold your whole family's fear. All on your tiny little shoulders. And then, for your family's survival, for your survival, you have to transcend it. I'm not worried, Mama. It's a really hard thing to do. Hold on to my hand. Hold on to my hand. But it's also a beautiful thing. Like actually going into the water. Yeah. <laughs> We're just going to put our feet in that. Okay. Thing. All right. Because on the other side of it, it feels good, actually, honest. <laughs> is joy. Very honest. Hello, Nature from REI Co-op Studios is brought to you by Subaru. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. Stephanie Cohn is the senior producer. This episode was written by me and Stephanie Cohn. It was sound designed by Stephanie Cohn. Jules Bradley and Valeria Alarcone provided additional production help throughout the season. Valentina Rivera is the senior engineer. Carly Bond is the composer. Elizabeth Goodspeed is our art director and designer and did our artwork for the series. The illustrations on the artwork are by Joshua Ariza. From REI Co-op Studios, executive producers are Jenny Barber, Joe Crosby, and Hannah Boyd. This episode is brought to you by Subaru. Did you know that since 2004, all Subaru vehicles have been manufactured at a zero landfill auto plant? That means that if you put a single bag of trash at your curb this week, you've sent more to a landfill than the Subaru of Indiana assembly plant will this entire year. I was able to visit Subaru's zero landfill auto plant earlier this year and was blown away by what I learned. Oh, wow. So exciting. The associates are the stars of this program. They created it and they continue to make it work every day. No manager, no vice president, no one can understand the process as well as that person who stands there on that line for eight hours a day, 238 days a year, doing that job over and over. And once you tap into that energy and once you ask the people, they'll tell you. They know. They know exactly what needs to be done. So they started coming up with ideas on, in their own little portion of the line that they worked on every day, things that they thought could be improved for the environment. 
thousands and thousands and thousands of ideas came in. And at the time we started, we were generating 459 pounds of waste for every vehicle we made. Now it's, it's around 210 pounds. There's a small amount that goes to a waste energy facility and the rest is recycled. Learn more about Subaru Zero Landfill Plant at Subaru.com slash environment. 